and welcome to season three, episode 13 of Hedgeye's Unscripted Equity Curiosity. My name is Ami Joseph. I'm the sector head for technology here at Hedgeye. And with me today is Felix Wang, the sector head for China here at Hedgeye. Uh, this podcast is meant to discuss equity ideas in all their shapes and forms and sizes, including macro or thematic or geopolitical or specific equities, long or short. And today, Felix and I are going to kick a few questions we have, update questions we have for each other that are uh, lead out of each other's sectors and into our own sectors. So I have questions for Felix that are about his sector that can help me think about mine and vice versa. And we're going to turn the mic first over to Felix for his questions, and we'll go from there. Great. Thanks, Ami. It's always wonderful to, to, to be on and to exchange ideas with you um, and also Andrew um, in our podcast. So I had a couple of questions for your space since you're the semiconductor guru. Uh, There's been a lot of headlines on these, you know, export controls that's coming out of the US and China on pretty much a weekly basis now. Uh, The latest being some rare earth metals that could be potentially restricted. What are you hearing from maybe some of the semis that you cover, uh, you know, how are they responding to these um, back and forth, tit for tat, if you will, uh, export controls uh, regarding, you know, anything that could be related to the chip space? I mean, is there also a way around these restrictions? Um, So that's kind of my first question. Yeah, I First of all, I think that um, this, like we've been talking about this economic war um, between these two countries, and it just seems to have no no end in sight. Like it just keeps rising and rising. And there's some, it's positive for some equities. It's negative for global growth of trade, but it's probably positive to some degree for like, for example, for semiconductors overall, I would say, even though in this case, there's going to be a shortage or potentially tightness for some parts of semiconductor, overall, the fact that um, Chinese components and Chinese semiconductor industry are being um, excluded from entering the global supply chain is positive for overall semiconductors. I mean, just for example, if you look at the fact that I think it was the back half of 2021, Apple was using XMT, which is a Chinese-based NAND manufacturer. And XMT is not a leading edge manufacturer and they don't have leading edge cost structure and they can't keep up yet with the leaders. But still, the fact that it was the first time ever that a Chinese supplier qualified to ship into Apple iPhone for NAND flash just shows like that we're really at we were entering or were arriving at the beginning of a uh, potentially very interesting period where Chinese supply could go mainstream, and I think that's been part of the short on Wolf Speed, for example, is the the um, rise of Chinese suppliers. I think in the case of germanium and gallium, they're not. Uh, They're not um, mainstream flavors for semiconductor. They're important. Um, Gallium arsenide uh, and germanium are are both flavors that appear a lot in radio frequency components. So it's not something that the world could just like get by without. But there, uh, but it's it's not a um, it's not like 
it's not like a restriction on CMOS wafers or something like that. So it's one of the things that potentially the other countries who produce germanium, for example, Canada, Finland, Russia, the United States, I guess not Russia in this case, but Canada, Finland, the United States could um, increase their uh, relative shipment in this area um, to offset that. But there's no doubt that China is doing this. Uh, and by the way, it's worse than gallium because the top producers, China, the second is Russia, the third is Ukraine. So you, you have to go look to Japan and Korea really for stable supply and they are the minority suppliers. So it's not, it's not an easy setup and uh, it's going to create some tightness and pressure. And no doubt China is doing this specifically for that reason. But um, it just seems, I guess, the broader context is this sort of like this conflict is just going to continue to escalate between these two. Yeah, um, I'm kind of feeling the same way, at least. Uh, I mean, at, at first I thought it was mostly rhetoric, but now it seems like there's actual uh, action being done here um, between the two parties. Obviously, you know, how I feel about the issue is more regarding, you know, collaboration is always better than competition. Um, but as long as one party does something to the other party, the other party is probably going to to try to fight back in some respect with these export controls. But that's that's really helpful for me. Um, yeah, I mean, my main point is that even though like an announcement like this will potentially create revenue hurdles for a specific company or restrictions for a certain company that then have to be factored into estimates. So that's negative. Um, the broader move is keeping China out of shipping semiconductors into the world is positive for oligopolistic pricing and oligopolistic Western competition model and mature um, period of growth where growth growth decelerates, but operating margins are healthy. And so it's probably good for multiples because people will extend the duration of this kind of earnings period and push out further the potential volatility that could come from China entering semiconductors whole hog with excess supply built from national uh, concerns, meaning nationally financed with uh, a better or lower ROI hurdle for those finances, because their government finance is just the same way that Taiwan entered the industry and Korea before that and Japan before that and the United States before that. So I think there's, um, uh, I, I think it's probably good for multiples, even if you have to sort of like start to remove some things from estimates uh, along the way uh, due to shipment limitations uh, that are related to this trade war. And so, so speaking of multiples, um, I guess this is a segue into my second question for you is, geez, like NASDAQ, tech, frenzy, uh, automatically I think of what happened during the internet boom in the late 90s, um, you know, driving up valuation, driving up multiples to stratospheric levels and now it seems like it's happening again um wondering you know what your thoughts on potential comparisons with the dot-com boom and then the dot-com bust after it um particularly with regard to you know ridiculous valuation extreme sentiment um in some in some sectors in, in your area hi 
Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of Sector Pro investing research products. Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between with exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actionable ideas on Wall Street. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think that uh, if this is, you know, if we are 1999 right now and entering uh, like an AI boom, I would say multiples ain't seen nothing yet. Like from May of 99 <laughs> to like one year later, the NASDAQ went up like, I don't know, something like 75%. And I promise earnings did not go up 75%. So, um, so I would say that there, there are things that remind me of, of um, there are things that remind me of the two events. Um, like, for example, like if I'm looking at a company like Salesforce, for example, who has like, I would say one new product um, called the data lake and their data lake offering. I, I guess I'm not an expert yet, but it seems to be, I'm, I'm going to be overly crude here and just basically say that it's taking customers data and reselling it back to them, even though that's kind of already their business model because it's a large database or it's like kind of like Excel that is customizable hanging in the cloud that you can access that can be shared with your teammates. Um, so it's kind of like a very crude, basic um, app at its core, at least the sales cloud is. And um, so just making, just going, offering a data lake on the side, I don't know if that's going to be successful. Um, and my point is that in the last decade, more and more of what Salesforce has been able to sell um, has been from acquisitions, right? They acquire something and the Salesforce is trained quickly on what are the key things that clients need from that newly acquired asset. And they go around to every account and they offer those things key crucial things for free. Um, those the accounts sort of standardize on it, get used to it. It's it's part of the Salesforce package. And then within two years, they're paying for it through the nodes. Um, and so it's 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 also why, by the way, Salesforce can never like sell down its pieces, its assets, because it's every good part of every acquisition is written into every license agreement at every major company customer. So it's not um, anyway, but the point about about this is where I'm going with this, sorry, is that you're, you're looking at that and you're trying to figure out like, should I go long Salesforce or short Salesforce? And, you know, you see the basics, you see that they are turning humans into a buyback, meaning they're cutting headcount and increasing buyback. So, I mean, that's a horrible way to say it, but it's just true. Um, so maybe that's a catalyst on the positive side. I mean, I want to barf, but yes. Um, and then you want to think about the growth side and, and they're investing in AI in order to um, renovate and refurbish and refresh their products. And the question is, like as a bear like me, you'd have to really think, I mean, I'm not officially a bear. We haven't like published, you know, rating on, on um, Salesforce just to be clear, but I think I've spoken on the morning call about them before and I'm not like the most positive person on it. Um but to be clear, like the um, they've taken away all acquisitions from this thing, and this data lake thing, you know, is flip a coin. I don't think so. I don't think it's going to be amazing. But you know, I probably have more work to do there. Um, but 
you have to, as a potential bear, you have to wonder like, could AI actually lead to like a big product upsell there? Like, could that add a billion dollars of organic revenue growth in the coming quarters? Like, is there really something there the clients are going to pay for? Um, and you can't just automatically say, no, my gut says no, but like I, you have to do the work. And so it's like that moment where companies adding internet um, in the late nineties were considered like adding a, you know, Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a book company. It's a bookstore company. And they just added a com. How much does that change the valuation? It did because people were like, well, they have this whole new channel that they can sell into. And the channel has everything we know about it, right? Everything we know about the internet having incremental margin, incremental um, high incremental margins. And so, and so there was this like rush of companies sort of building out. And I remember a Fidelity portfolio manager, I didn't work at Fidelity back then, I did later on, but I heard the lore uh, when I worked at Fidelity, they were portfolio managers walking around being like, I like to sprinkle internet into my, or technology or .com into my portfolio. Meaning it's kind of like saying like, I have no freaking clue. Um, I'm going to throw some darts though, because it's going, I'm going to have some high multiple nosebleed stocks that are going to go up every day for no freaking reason. Otherwise, other than they went up yesterday and momentum loves momentum. And um, that's kind of, a, it's not, we don't really have that today with AI, right? Um, because not every uh, declarative AI stock is going up on AI. I think Palantir is going up because it was heavily shorted. I think C3 is going up because at the bottom it was like 80% net cash to cap. So, uh, and then, and heavily shorted. And so like, you know, a, a, a second or even third derivative of inflection there where results stop getting worse potentially, which I haven't even looked at results, but I'm assuming that's what happened. And that causes a big short squeeze, even though it's not like succeeding in AI necessarily. So I, I don't think that we are in this like massive AI hype cycle. I think we could become in one, but I don't think we are in one. I think companies are all, ch- so in terms of equities, I don't think we're there yet. I think companies are chasing the AI reality and throwing a lot of money at this. And that's, I don't know where that goes. Like, does that lead, like, are we going to start seeing like companies like Salesforce, for example, having success in AI? And then suddenly like it, the equity is going to go kaboom upward. And and that's just going to, now every investor is going to be looking for AI um, in every single company. I know that the AI supply chain is something that investors are looking at, right? NVIDIA. And then what comes next is DRM. And then what comes next is whatever power management. And then there's like all the way down to data centers. Um, and, you know, Rob Simone talked about this, that he and I had this conversation with a client recently about data centers and, and the AI or the NVIDIA implied NVIDIA impact to data centers is, is quite large. It's meaningful in terms of the incremental capacity that has to be built out just to support existing NVIDIA orders. But that's not the same as like an AI boom where you're like, oh my God, uh, you know, Salesforce announced an AI or has an AI product and therefore they're going to add billions of dollars of revenue in the short term. And so I don't think we're there yet in equities. We seem to be there a little bit or we're going there with actual fundamentals, with companies actually spending big dollars without a clear ROI inside, without clear understanding. And it's funny because a minute ago, those same companies 
were like firing people, cutting budget, pushing out. I mentioned um, uh, those of you listening, you're going to be getting this uh, as usual on a Saturday morning. But I mentioned this on a this today's Wednesday. I mentioned this on the morning call this morning about HashiCorp that um, HashiCorp has is is the way of the future. Uh, it is the is a monolith in its category, basically for for this approach of managing your infrastructure via multi cloud. The largest companies in the world are going in this direction. However, uh, many of them have agreed to this sort of agreed to this architecture, designed this architecture in uh, for Hashi, but haven't really pulled the trigger on closing deals because we're in this macro environment, which is like anybody's guess of like what's going to happen next. And so people have frozen spending, and so we've been in this climate where people have been pushing out spending, freezing spending, doing whatever you can to like lower the budget. And then suddenly uh, Hashi's needed now again, because if you're going to, if you're an AWS shop or a Google shop or an, a partially on-prem shop, and you suddenly have an Azure AI uh, account open, and you need all of your assets to integrate with that Azure AI and, and get your data there and start working with their LLMs and whatnot, and, and have kind of like this open API layer of GPT-4 in the layer in between some of your apps, um, you, you, need, you need to manage your, your infrastructure across multiple clouds and you need to do it right and you need to do it ASAP and fast. And so suddenly there's a reason to come back to Hashi and be like, boom, okay, we're done waiting. <laughs> Let's get this, this deal done. And so I don't think that's happening like a run of the bulls, but I like, you know, like we're not in Spain in the middle of the summer, but I do think that's starting to happen um, a little bit. There's a trickle, there's a green shoot there, which potentially drives uh, a little bit faster growth for Hashi on the forward basis than what we're like fact, what everyone's factoring into estimates today. So that's a good thing. Um, and my point is the AI supply chain is getting a lot of love from investors, but not the, AI like product love, like not like I said about the Salesforce having an AI product or ServiceNow potentially having an AI product. Um, those things are still being met with skepticism at the investor level, even though the companies themselves are investing like crazy. And for example, even just take the Accenture investment, right? The famous Accenture investment, they put up $3 billion for AI. First of all, it's fantastic marketing on their side, right? Because is anyone really going to know if they've spent like only one-tenth of 1% of that $3 billion? No, no one's going to know. Their customers aren't going to know. Um, and they're sending a message to all their customers, like, which says, hey, there's this big new thing. You're all trying to figure out what to do with it. We're going to figure out how to do, how to do AI for you. So just come, you can, go, don't worry about it. If you can't, can't figure out AI, just come to us and we'll have figured it out for you. And, and, you know, and that's another reason to work with Accenture. It's brilliant marketing. Um, every major new tech thing that has happened is always good for IT services. By the way, in the beginning, they always say like, oh, this is going to kill IT services. I don't need IT services anymore. I just go to GPT-4. Um, or I don't need IT services anymore. I just push everything to cloud. I'm going to have applications running everything. I don't need IT services. I mean, but did cloud actually kill IT services? No, it actually, like, I know someone who, made his retirement money selling an IT services company that was built early on for cloud. Um, and it was called, you know, cloud, whatever. I don't even want to say, cause I, I don't want to give the person's identity away, but he sold that company to a larger IT services company who was late for cloud and saw that this business was already strong and up and, and had many consultants and was trained and had lots of customers and, and momentum and growth. And they were bought for like, I don't know, a big number, a big number. He, you know, retired off of that. 
Um, I guess we should start a, some AI consulting thing right now. Probably many consultancies have already kicked off for that. But anyway, uh, long-winded answer. But uh, to compare today in uh, internet 1999 to AI, I would say the, the difference so far is companies are spending a lot to chase AI, um, just like companies spent a lot to chase the internet uh, back then. And um, and algorithm, but investors, while investors are looking at the equity supply chain for opportunities downstream from Nvidia, they're not chasing every little AI product boost that, in theory, is going to you know all the ships that will berth into the sea, and potentially you know maybe they'll trigger more enterprise demand and and maybe not. So long-winded answer, but that's kind of like a complicated where we are now with AI, I think. That's that's fantastic. Phenomenal color there, Ami. Um, you know, I'm actually looking into some AI companies uh, as well and trying to figure out the winners and losers, particularly the smaller guys. You know, I completely agree with you. It's, it is more about, you know, can companies monetize this sort of once in a lifetime event with, uh, you know, GPT products and so forth. And lots of companies, not only companies in China, but but particularly companies in China, they're also thinking about pursuing their own AI products and projects. And it's funny, I mean, you know, we, we talk about the incredibly high multiples right now, US tech, and then maybe just valuation doesn't matter anymore. I look at my space in China and there are probably only a few potatoes that are overcooked on valuation. Uh, most of my names are trading at historic lows on valuation, but I've argued many, many times that valuation just does not matter or it's not the main catalyst, uh, particularly for, for, for China. Um, but it's interesting nonetheless to know what an incredible dichotomy that's going on in, in valuation, uh, U.S. tech versus China tech. In what way? You mean like U.S. tech is overvalued and China tech is undervalued? Is that? Well, I don't want to say overvalued, but the numbers are much, much higher, no matter what metric you use, okay, um, than, than what China is uh, you know, implicit in, in some of the China names I cover, particularly in the tech and internet space. Um, it's just no no comparison at the moment, and part of the reason why you've seen you know a huge rally in Nasdaq, and um, you know China had a big rally to begin the year, but since then it's been more wobbly. Is kind of how I would describe it. Yeah, I mean, from a valuation perspective, um, just looking, I, I like I, you're, you know the. The dream scenario is you're back in 2012. Not that anybody in 2012 knew that we were in 2012 at the time. But in 2012, valuations were just ridiculously cheap on EPS, on free cash flow metrics. And you were at the very beginning of a long and rising cyclical tailwind. Um, so Everyone wants that. That's like the dream, right? You want to get there. You, if you're really starting a new, new long-term cycle, you want to start it with you know valuations that reflect lowered estimates. And I admit that with the with the bounce that we've seen so far, estimates have actually come down. Stocks have gone up, 
and which means that stocks are already anticipating a rebound of estimates to some degree. Yeah. yeah. And you kind of have to figure out like, is there more to go for estimates going higher? That's actually the question we're figuring out right now. We're going to have our, our theme stack on uh, Monday. Um, highly recommend. You know, it's the kind of thing that we um, we we actually really like. We've been able to bring it down to a couple of key slides that that just express it all in terms of like where we are in um, in revenue growth as terms versus valuation for the whole sector. And you can there's and we're adding uh, billings and RPO billings this time. For this exact same thing, so you'll you'll be able to like just look at it and kind of just like eyeballing it and be, be and say, oh, that's 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 bullish, or you could say that's bearish, right? Like you can actually just in a single visual make a kind of like a a determination about the sector, like long or short, and then within that, you always obviously always want to be layering in your good company, bad company stuff, your your positives and your negatives, your alpha. But it's good to know. It's good to have like a really good orientation. That's that's um, Monday, July 10. So for those getting this on a uh, Saturday morning, uh, um, Tech Pro subscribers have access and institutional subscribers have access. If you need access, uh, just find a way through uh, hedgeye.com or th- or or you know ping um, uh, sales at hedgeye.com or ping tech at hedgeye.com, um, and we'll try to help you out. Um, but but that's the um, that's what we're trying to figure out right now. And what I would say about uh, valuations is that let's talk about just plain vanilla software company. Like, let's just take like Joe's stupid software company. Okay. Um, old rule of thumb was you can get a software company up to that 40 to 50% free cash flow yield, uh, free cash flow margin, I would say. Um, and that's because. Um, your maintenance margins are so freaking high uh, that, you know, because they used to sell you your software. Like, so let's say you paid a hundred dollars for a license to use the software forever, but then you had to pay like 20 bucks a year for access to the support and the patches and the maintenance and, you know, whatever you needed. And the cost structure for the companies on cost of goods sold for that support or maintenance, uh, $20 was like 1%, like really literally, it was like 99% margin, uh, gross margin. So you can get, oh, those old school companies, you can get them up to that 40 plus percent range of free cash flow. The cloud companies, it's uh, to be TBD because the cloud companies, you're actually hosting the usage of your clients and that costs money. So it depends how elegantly your software is written. If your software is written really in like light, and creatively, and and um, it means that it's going to use less CPU, less memory, less storage on the underlying cloud, and so you you could have higher margins if it's written if it's old and it's written poorly. It's, you're going to have lower cloud margins there. Um, so call it like something like could be like sixty five to 85 percent gross margins, depending on you know kind of like ahead of the pack, behind the pack in that zone. Um, so your your free cash flow margins are going to be lower. They're going to be more like that. 25 to 25 to 45% range, I guess 45, but maybe at the max. But if you look at valuation and you say, okay, well, uh, take a company trading at five times sales, right? So, and if you can get that company to call it, I said 25, to call it 35% 
uh, um, free cash flow margins, then that company is trading at 14 times free cash flow. Um, that's below market, right? So five times free cash flow, that's below market. And that's, that's assuming like a market, like that's below market in software, which is over 20. And that's also like, but just below S and P and, and that's assuming S and P level growth. So let's say, I don't know, two, two, three times, uh, GDP. Um, and so anytime you have software companies trading at five times, you kind of have to take it seriously because you, you're like, well, this thing has 25, 30, 40% growth ahead. I mean, for five times revenue, Jesus, like, you know, you're going to make money hand over fist with that entry point. So today, if I look at like for 20, 20% revenue growth on a forward basis is going to cost you something like eight times sales today for 20% growth. So it's not like super cheap. It's not like saying five times which it was, or five and a half times, so kind of at the bottom, um, eight times a little pricier, but it's still not like ridiculously priced. You can still get a decent ROI on that because that's um, that's 23 times free cash flow. And again, you're growing uh, 20% year over year. So that's just one year forward, 22, 23 times. If you're growing that top line nicely, uh, and and the free cash flow line aside, it you're you know obviously within a couple of years um, that number falls to. Hang on, I'll give you the math here. Hi, Robert McGordy here, director of subscriber development at Hedgeye. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis, our favorite stock ideas, and our risk manager in chief Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of forty plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends and our high conviction, long and short investing ideas. You will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. A video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from the call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. And tune in live to the call weekdays at 7.45 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Um, that math of valuation of... Uh, falls to 15, 16 times forward for cash flow on a, you know, two years out. So you, you, you get your ROI pretty fast uh, from a grower. Um, and so I guess what I would say is that software today is um, not quite as cheap as it was in November, which worries me, especially with estimates down, but it's also like, not like, you know, it's not punching people in the nose, causing bleeding. Uh, for the valuation, obviously you have to take that, you know, you have to take that like company by company because not everything is, is right. A line lines up, you know, alongside a single line, but um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of like how I would think about valuation today It's still it's up, but it's not offensive. Okay. Yeah. I mean, on, on the solar topic of cloud, at least in my world, you know, the one entity that always, gets a lot of attention is alley cloud um it's interesting you you're 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 giving um scenarios on me of you know if a xyz grows certain percent you know what is could be a reasonable ev or sales or you know free cash flow multiple on that kind of business well what if you have an entity that doesn't grow anymore 
right? And then the analysts out there are thinking, wow, you know, LA Cloud, it should be like an AWS equivalent. We should put a huge multiple on the EV itself. No, you can't do that anymore because you have different growth um, profiles. So that was, that, that, you know, that's kind of my argument against uh, Alibaba, particularly with the Alley Cloud valuation component of it. Um, it's interesting because, you know, uh, other people are, are definitely putting, you know, five, eight, 10, even double digit multiples for this business where they've clearly shown enormous deceleration. Um, so what I will argue on that perspective is the market got, got it right or is, is getting it right. Um, and there's a reason why, you know, Alibaba is trading where it is. Um, I just wanted to mention that one example because, uh, you know, as you talk about cloud, everybody always gets excited about putting pretty steep sales multiple as long as the growth is there. Um, well, remember, but, yeah, remember like the Ali cloud is infrastructure as a service. So they have to, they, it's not just about the free cash, like, there, I would say it's not just about operating margin, let's say. Um, it's you have a serious amount of capex required to um, provide the scale of service that is required um, to to be a top tier cloud provider and to win workloads over time and and keep them. So so your um, margin considerations are different. and uh, and then I would also say that on a um, uh, for uh, although it, although those businesses, if you get them, if you keep, if you get, if you can create a cloud and infrastructure service layer and win real clients on top who are using sticky long-term services on top of your base layer, uh, that's today, I would say it's bedrock technology. Like it's good, a good place to be, good, good long-term position um, and still not done uh, with the penetration curve, if it's a loser, if it doesn't have the right, if they're not winning customers, if they're not winning new business, then it's a tough place to be because to catch up, you still have to spend the CapEx. You can't, you know, if you're not growing, <laughs> you're either shutting down, you know, shutting down that business or you're, you got to go spend the CapEx on top of the fact that you're not growing in order to get yeah. back ahead of it. Um, so it's a tough place. Um, and what I would say about the no growth side in SaaS, uh, not in infrastructure as a service, because the CapEx front that I mentioned, but in SaaS, even those companies that stop growing, they become really interesting to the private equity uh, group because, as you can imagine, uh, if they have a clean, if the company has a clean balance sheet and is generating uh, thirty to forty percent or something, or is on their way towards generating, you know, forty percent free cash flow margins you can lever up 40, 40% free cash flow margins and spend that on the leverage you spend on um, acquisitions and that fuels some of the growth and such. And so, you know, you get your, your multiple, as long as you keep your, your margins, you know, you, you get your multiple return there for, for private equity guys. It's a, it's more like financial engineering rather than like real company building. But um, again, the cash flow perspectives in software uh, attract a lot of uh, vultures and bottom feeders and such because it, it's it, it's attractive. Yeah, I, I mean, I think AliCloud actually does a little bit more than IaaS. Um, uh, but I, I mean, I agree with you. It, it is a different type of margin 
profile than than your sector. Um, but my point on iCloud is just like there's there's competition internationally, and there's much more competition domestically, and that involves a lot of state-owned entities. Um, but you know, we'll see. I mean, I, I I'm still I mean still looking for something that. Uh, if you you know if you look at what I like in my space, I love growth. I really love growth, and it's it's hard to find those companies right now in in a difficult um, sort of choppy, wobbly environment in China. But there are still great companies out there that can deliver outperformance on the growth side, and I think investors should give them more than a benefit of the doubt there. Um, in terms of trying to control losses as well as grow, which is a very difficult combination, as you know. Um, but this has been an interesting discussion. I mean, those are the questions I had on my side. And we're, uh, I'll just turn it back over to you. Yeah, I mean, we're getting towards the end of the time, but I did want to ask you, um, I know that you're heading to China next week. Uh, safe travels, by the way. I hope you have a healthy, safe, uh, happy trip. Uh, Thank get, you. Good success work-wise. Uh, may f- fortune favors the Felix. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I'm, I guess my question is like, I noticed that recently the United States issued a travel um, warning for going to mainland China. And I, it's recent. And it was after China jailed a 78-year-old man claiming he was a spy and gave him a, a life sentence, which I, I have no idea whether he's a spy or not. I really, I think it's, I mean, I could make fun of it and be like, yeah, it's we could make a movie called James Geriatric instead of James Bond. But um, but I, I guess like how, tell me like how you're thinking about that. I know you're a U.S. citizen. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. It strikes me as odd because there's like, aren't there like thousands of U.S. citizens living in China right now and like tons of major U.S. businesses who have people going back and forth between the U.S. and China every day? Like, is this like a Brittany Griner situation in in, in moment where, you know, for example, the, I'm referring to the WNBA, uh, a basketball player uh, who was arrested in China uh, early days of the Ukraine war and jailed as bait. Uh, for for just ransom, essentially, that Russia wanted to make a trade, a prisoner swap, and she was just randomly taken for no really good reason. I mean, there was some element there, but nothing like no nothing that you would throw somebody in jail for uh, for a lengthy period with no trial and such. Um, tell me how you're thinking about this trip. Not that I want to cause you to be nervous about it, but like tell me tell me how you're thinking about this kind of like the situation. Yeah, um, I really don't have a comment on the travel advisory that's been given out. I think, uh, you know, there's there's always situations, right? Um, international situations where it could lead one country to issue an advisory, but more from a political perspective than anything else. I mean, I, I'm going there to see clients. I'm going there to see management teams and some of my you know, merchant sources that I've been in communication with. I haven't seen them face to face in over four years. So, uh, you know, I, I'm going over there to go see people I think um, could give me uh, some context on what's going on. Um, on a daily basis on the ground in China. So I, you know, 
I don't think a travel advisory is is gonna get me worried. What I am worried is, uh, you know, I still have to take a COVID test um, going into Beijing. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm gonna have to find a center. I'm sure there, there are plenty of resources there, but just lo- logistics wise, uh, I am a little bit nervous, um, you know, going to mainland and then coming out of mainland and coming back to the U.S. from a logistics perspective. But f- frankly, everything's opened up. Uh, very little, you know, requirements, restrictions on on, on going from country to country. Uh, it's a little, it's completely different picture from maybe a year ago. So from that perspective, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more comfortable. But yeah, I'm super excited. Um, and uh, I'll share some highlights of my trip uh, with you guys on next podcast. Yeah, awesome. That would be great. Um, and uh, the insights can be, you know, just all the way down to like anecdotal observances of, you know, of consumer patterns, consumer buying, things like that, that uh distributor mentality whatever you you know kind of like you know especially if you see stuff from the pc supply chain or anything like that that or from the cell phone supply chain or data center supply chain or and it discuss if you hear about uh views of like the internal buildup of semiconductors and, and the national objectives there um all of that uh greatly appreciated uh insights uh, and with that, I think we'll wrap today. Uh, it's been an interesting one to catch up with Felix. Uh, I think we uh, covered good ground with AI. We covered good ground with China. And we will follow up and see you on the next podcast. This has been season three, episode 13 of Unscripted Equity Curiosity. Thank you. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.